0: All right, Book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah. I started the wrong thing first, but that's okay. Book of Jeremiah. I always wait to start uh, the live broadcast on Spreaker after I've started the other one, but hey, that's okay. They'll catch up. All right, Book of Jeremiah. The first hour we looked at, Jeremiah chapter six. And the basic summary of Jeremiah chapter six is, I'll just repeat a vivid prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian invaders, which became a horrible reality in whose own lifetime? Jeremiah's. Okay. Over and over, he warns with pathetic insistence that repentance is their last possible chance to escape ruin. As we work through Jeremiah chapter 6, we understand that there's some verses there and there's some complexities and, and difficulties in trying to understand it. But for the most part, it was pretty simple and pretty straightforward if we just step back and don't get caught up in all of the, the difficulties. So let's just start reading in Jeremiah chapter six. We got down all the way to what verse? Okay, we got we finished 10, right? And I think we we're just about to start 11 and the first hour, all right? So in the second hour, the goal is to finish Jeremiah six. The, the, the original goal was, the second hour was supposed to be Jeremiah chapter seven, but it obviously did not happen. Okay, So we're going to really just try to finish up Jeremiah six. Here we go, starting in verse one, "O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, both blow the trumpet into Koah, set up a sign fire and Bethakram, for evil appeareth out of the north and great destruction." So simply God telling those in Jerusalem and Judah to get out and warn people. Right? And the, the way they were gonna warn was two ways blow the trumpet and the sign fire. Everybody got that? All right, that was simple, straightforward, no problem. Verse 2 I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. Right? He is describing he basically, hey Judah, you're like a woman, a beautiful, delicate woman. That's wonderful. That's great. You go, oh, I'm so flattered. But there's nothing to be flattered in this situation because it's like you're a delicate woman, and what's coming your way is an army. And a delicate woman against an army, a strong man against a delicate, or a strong man against a delicate woman, no, the woman's going to win. Okay, now a strong man against an army is still what, going to lose. But he's using it in the most de- descriptive way, right? The most descriptive way. Using what kind of language again? Figurative language. Then the shepherds with their flock shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her roundabout, and they shall feed everyone in his place. Now, remember, now once we see the her, the her is referencing whom? The delicate woman, right? Judah, right? So just keep that in mind, because that's going to help some confusion here in a minute, right? All right. So, hey, the the, the enemies are described as shepherds with their flocks, right? Hey, In a sense, the generals are going to bring in all of the troops. They're just going to come in and they're going to do what? Just, they're going to take whatever they want. Feed upon the land. Now, verse 4, prepare ye war against her. Who is being told to prepare? Babylon is being told to prepare their war against her. Because the her, we've already established who the her is, right? All right, so once we've established that, now we know how to continue on. All right, prepare you war against her, and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Seemingly, the idea is, hey, hey, guys, you need to get up and go to war at noon. And they're like, but wait, we're going to run out of sunlight. And then it says, arise, and let us go by night, and let us destroy her palaces. The her there, again, we still believe is Judah, Jerusalem, all right? For thus, uh, for thus hath the Lord of hosts said, Hew ye down trees and cast them out against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is holy. Oppression in the midst of her, as a fountain casteth out her waters, so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is hurt in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. Hey, go destroy them, because basically they are filled with every kind of wrong you can think of. So go take them, destroy them. Then verse 8, be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, let my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee a desolate land not inhabited. Now, the key with verse eight, we talked a little bit about this. I don't want to spend this became a major focus in the last hour. This is God telling Judah and Jerusalem to do what, basically? To listen, right? Be thou instructed, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate a land to be inhabited. It's another call for them to listen. Another call for them to repent. Another call for them to to make the necessary changes. And remember, we talked about this in the first hour. You have two very different theological camps in the world of Christianity. Right? The two camps do not agree with one another, and both camps produce millions of questions that no one has good answers to. Right, So what's the overall question that should be coming to your mind over and over as you read the book of Jeremiah? Here is the question. Why does someone repent, and why does someone refuse to repent? What causes someone to repent, and what keeps someone from repenting? What causes someone to repent? What causes someone not to repent? If you want to word it that way. And what are the two camps within Christianity when it comes to this question? Okay, one is Bobby repents, Stephen doesn't, and it's because Bobby chose to repent. Bobby did it. So then who gets the credit? Bobby, the Christians may try to take the credit from him, but if it's free will, then it's all whom? Bobby. Bobby. And then Stephen didn't because Stephen just refused not to. The other camp is, why did Bobby repent? God has to grant the repentance. And why did Stephen not repent? God did not. Now you see where both of these lead to all kinds of different problems and questions, yes? If it's free will, well, one, if it's free will, the, the question is, then, w- there's really no point praying because God can't do anything to impact someone's free will or it would not be free will, all right? So And second, then, we get the credit, right? And not only that, then you have to deny the existence of, like if you're going to believe in free will, you have to deny the existence of total depravity. Can't have a sin nature in you because the sin nature would impact what? Your will, your will wouldn't be free. All right, does that make sense? Okay, all right. So, and then if you believe that it's God doing it, it raises all kinds of questions because then why wouldn't God just grant everyone repentance in the first place? And then there would be no need for a Babylonian captivity. It's the never, these are the theological issues and everyone always thinks that their way is right. But no matter which way you go, I want you to see no matter which way you go, you're left with what? dilemmas that there's no easy way to get out of and don't ever think that there is an easy way because you're just lying to yourself right that brings us to verse 9 thus saith the lord of hosts, they shall they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of israel as a vine and turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets Uh, now this is basically they're going to come in and pick you pick you clean right verse 10 to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear, is, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Their big issue is an uncircumcised ear. They don't like God's word. They find no delight in it. And so then we talked about how do you fix those problems? Because this happens to many Christians at any different time in your Christian life. How do you fix the fact that your ear just seems to be closed to God? You're not not loving it. You're not delighting in it. And we talked about how to fix it. And we spent the whole first hour working on that. That was some very important things. But for, even though I don't want to move past that, we have to. So we go to verse 11. First word in verse 11. Therefore. Right? Right? Now, therefore, because of what? Their uncircumcised ear, God's word being a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it, God is what? I'm full of fury. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting because look at how verse 11 is written. How does the NIV translate verse 11? King James, therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. That doesn't seem to be God speaking, does it? The the uh, Christian standard Bible, but I am full of the Lord's wrath. I'm tired of holding it back. What do you think? What do you think? Talk to me. What do you think? No, we didn't get there. This is, yeah, we're, we're now entering into uncharted waters. We have not covered yet. Okay, what do y'all think? Guess what this uh, this commentary does? Ignore it. Ignore it. There you go. Don't you love when you spend money on commentaries and they just like, no, we're not going to cover this in any way. Now, this is how this commentary handles it. You ready? Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord because God's people were full of oppression and wickedness and would not listen to the word of the Lord. God was full of fury against them and was weary of holding it in. Is that God? What do y'all think? Come on, talk to me. You get a chance to vote. We're, we're a democratic theological society. Okay, no. Other until I disagree with you. Okay, Bobby's just certain it's Jeremiah. He's just—he knows it. At least you're committed. I like—I like the commitment. I like the commitment. I like the commitment. I'm not setting anybody up. I—I I, don't—I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I can all see y'all's hesitance. Like that does not sound like God speaking, does it? It does not. I was hoping there was some translation that. Right. Okay. That like Babylon is full of fury? Yeah. Because basically God has put God, God free. Okay, that's, inter- that's an interesting approach. I haven't thought of that one. Okay, that's good. See, this is why we talk it out. That's interesting. What do you think? The rest of you non-committal people. All right, we got two. Two for Jeremiah, definitely. There, in the back? Okay. We've got some different approaches here. All right. That's it. Verses, seven verses? that's true. Good point. A uh, way to look at context. Do you see her her argument? Is how many times? Three, times? Three times in how many verses? In seven? seven verses, it says, "Thus saith the Lord of Hosts." So uh, ad- right? so, uh, yeah. Of course, the NIV does. They're going to put anything in there that they want. Okay, I'm joking. Okay. Right, right. right. So that they they that when he says, therefore, I'm full of the fury of the Lord, that that is not in quotes yeah i don't yeah, I don't know, I do like the argument that thus saith the Lord is used over and over and over, so um. Well, let's read it as if God is speaking. Let's read it as God is speaking. I know it sounds weird, right? It's written completely weird, right? There, there, yeah, well, I I mean, the whole Bible at times, right? Okay, but therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord, right? That's God speaking. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the age with him that is full of days. Now, if we understand to pour out, I'm going to pour it out upon the children abroad, right? If that is God pouring out the actual judgment, then it only makes sense that God is speaking through the whole verse. If Jeremiah is speaking, then he's only pouring it out in what way? Just the preaching of the message. Yeah, just preaching the message, right? So either that's God, because if God is the one pouring it out, then it would only make sense that God is the one speaking in the entire verse. Does that make sense? Right? I'm trying, look, Sarah gave us the context argument. I'm trying to find some language within the verse itself that only makes sense. Like, well, wait a minute. If God's not the one speaking at the beginning, it would seem weird that, well, then who's doing the pouring out, right? Because it clearly seems that whoever is upset, the one who is frustrated, right, full of God's wrath, is the one pouring it out. So either it's Jeremiah pouring it out or it's God pouring it out. Does everyone understand what I'm trying to say? Yes? Right? The one who is full of the fury is the one who's going to pour it out. So it's either God is the one full of fury who's going to pour it out or it's Jeremiah so full of the fury of the Lord that he's so upset he can't hold it in anymore and he's just going to speak it. But then the argument would be, well, hasn't he already been speaking it? Then the argument is, well, is this in chronological order? We already know it's not in chronological order, so I don't know what's going on, okay? Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, I'm just saying you've got two options there. Right. Whoever is full. Does everyone agree that whoever is full of the fury in that verse is the one who's going to pour it out? And it does seem like he's going to pour it out when people are gathered together, either in the streets or like. So then is he that? Hey, Jeremiah's going to go find the people and say, hey. Guys, I am so tired of all of this. I'm so... Right. So I don't know. Does anyone have any definitive way in which they would like to handle it? (laughs) I'm giving you the opportunity. Contextually, it makes sense that it's God speaking. Language-wise, it doesn't. Do I? Did we did we not think God was speaking in ten? Was there a, was there a dispute about ten? Right. I'm just saying. Was there a, 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 a was someone was we not agreeing on verse ten? Now, verse eleven is one we're struggling with only because it says, "Therefore, I'm full of the fury of the Lord," would seem weird for God to be saying that that's that's why we've raised the question about 11 there's been no question about 9 or 10 everyone thought 9 and 10 god is clearly speaking right or did you see something in 10 that made you think it wasn't god Well, okay, I see what you're saying. So it's almost like you're you're reading it as Jeremiah's like, "This is what God is saying," right? Okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay, I, I wasn't following. All right. let's do this okay let's do this okay. Okay, let's do this this is the wonderful world of hermeneutics we're gonna we're gonna violate every rule okay clearly there's some confusion here only because the language is so odd in verse 11 everyone can language in verse 11 i don't think we would even be raising the question right we wouldn't even be having an issue all right but because we're having an issue we do know this all right so let's do this we do know this um Babylon is coming in, and they're going to glean them basically like grape gatherers. It's going to take from everything. Agreed? All right. The, that the people of Judah are not going to listen because they have uncircumcised ear, and they do, uh, don't, They don't. God's word is a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. All right? Yes? No matter who's speaking, we know that these are sp- dogmatic. This is what's being fo- spoke, spoken of. Then in verse 11, we know this, that... Whoever is full of the fury, whoever, we know this is going to happen. Something is going to be poured out on the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together, for even the husband husband with the wife shall be taken, and the age with him that is full of days. Judgment has come. God is full of, someone is full of fury. We know God is obviously filled with fury. Jeremiah may be frustrated, but judgment's going to be poured out. Can we agree on that? No matter how it's going to be, either, it's we know it's going to be poured out in two different ways, right? It's going to be poured out in being spoken, and it's going to be poured out in a literal way. Can we agree with that? All right, I'm just looking for anything to help us, all right? Then verse 12, and their houses shall be turned unto others with their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the Lord. Now we do know in verse 12, speaking, saith the Lord. So again, yeah, I... The context here makes me feel like God is speaking all of it. But I can understand where there would be some confusion. But it just seems like God is clearly the one talking, right? So, but the main thing is we know what's happening. Horrible judgment is coming. All right? Verse 13. For for from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness and From the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. All right, now this is once again describing how bad the situation is. How bad is the situation? Everyone is filled with what? Covetousness. Everyone is filled with covetousness. Now, do this really quick. Look up, first look up the Hebrew definition for covetousness. The Blue Letter Bible app, yeah. Everyone look up the definition for covetousness. You don't have to pronounce the Hebrew word. Just look at the the meaning of covetousness. Verse 13. Yeah, it's verse 13. Someone else look up an English definition for covetousness. You've got a Bible dictionary next to you. You can look it up uh, in the Bible dictionary. It's going to play a little game. Not really a game here, but try to demonstrate something. Covetousness. Yeah, strong. Okay, all right. So it's mainly trying to obtain something. By any means necessary. That would be my definition. Outline of biblical usage? Uh, profit, unjust gain, gain, and hope, uh, acquired by balance. Okay. Uh, the Hebrew focuses more on how it's being obtained, right? Bible dictionary? An intense desire to possess something that belongs to another person. That to another person. Okay? Right. Uh, did you look up English definition, Diane? No. Okay, that's fine. All right. Okay, that's fine. So an intense desire to possess something that can belong to someone else, all right? Everyone here is filled with covetousness. Well, I just want you to just consider, because again, so many times, I find it interesting that, and just, just, just when you're reading Jeremiah for anyone doing the Bible study exercise, it's very interesting As you read Jeremiah, or you read Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or any of the minor prophets, or you read anything in the Old Testament, over and over and over, if you look at the sins that get condemned so strongly, right? Like, I mean, the things that God's wrath is being poured out against. So many times it's things like idolatry, or covetousness, or pride or not caring for the, the people who are in need. Like, it's these kinds of sins. And it's weird that, in, in one sense, the Bible seems to emphasize God's wrath against certain kinds of sins that so many times in the church, they don't get the same attention. <clears throat> have, you, have you ever noticed that? If you look at the things Christians get yelled and scream about, do they do they always agree with the things God seems so upset about in the Old Testament? And so how do we I think that's something that every Christian should consider. How did we get so disconnected, right? Because we almost create here's what determines morality and ignore what God really got upset about. It would be like it would be a good experiment for someone to start in Genesis and go from Genesis to Malachi. And, and really make a list of all the things God gets upset about. Which things. And then make a list of the top five. What do you think the top five would be? Like if you were just guessing. Okay, idolatry would be probably number one. Can we agree idolatry would probably be number one? All right. Now if idolatry is number one, then we're in trouble, right? Because that's just putting anything before God. What would be probably some others that you think would be on the list? Okay, lying. Okay, you think that would be in the top five? Definitely, there's some scriptures against it, mainly in Proverbs. Yeah, we got idolatry is number one. Yeah, no question. What else? What else? Covetousness, I think, would possibly be in the top five. Okay, well, now you're going Proverbs again, yeah, right? But I just think it would be an interesting experiment to see because I just think our, we, it's weird because we, we get so upset about things and we always have God being as upset about those things as we are. Disbelief, yeah, he definitely wasn't a big fan of that, right? <laughs> right that was a big one, right? A lack of trusting him. Right. I just think that I just want you to consider that sometimes when you when we get upset about something or we're ranting and raving and we're mad. The culture is doing ABC and we're getting all frustrated with it. Stop and ask ourselves, where, where did God demonstrate that being upset about it? Now, I'm not saying that you can never find an example. But sometimes you'll find one or two examples of God being upset about it and ignore all the other things that he showed that he was much more upset about. Does that make sense? All right. So, but they're all filled with covetousness. What else? All right. The prophets and the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. How do you think that? So we got covetousness. And we got the prophets and the priests dealing falsely. How do you think they're dealing falsely? What do you think they're doing that's so false? Okay. Right. Do you think that they're dealing falsely in the sense that that their message is false? What do you think? I think so. All right. Well, let's read the next verse. They, who's the they? Everyone thinks the they in 14 is the prophets and the priests? What do we think? All right. We're, we're, we're strong. We're in agreement on something? All right. Let's stop this and let's remember this moment in a time of silence. Okay, no. All right, they have done what? They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people. Now, of the daughter in the King James is in italics, meaning it's not in the original. All right, so they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. As one uh, commentary puts it, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious as men used to cure the slight hurts of their children by blowing on them only or stroking them over. In other words, that they're trying to heal the hurt of the people, but they're only healing the hurt of the people in what way? Obviously in a way that's not very, it's not really helpful because they're telling them what? According to that verse. They're telling them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, these prophets were dealing falsely. And how were they dealing falsely? Because they had a false message. But why were they giving the false message? Well, according to that verse, why were they giving the false message? Don't forget that whole healing part. That's a key element here. Yeah, they're trying to dress the wound. The people are worried and concerned because they're hearing things like, say, from Jeremiah or others saying, what's coming? Judgment is coming, and they try to cure that by saying, it's all okay. It's going to be 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 okay. To be okay. I, wonder, I wonder how many times when we tell people it's going to be okay, I wonder when we're only slightly trying to dress the wound. All right, I, and we 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 have a tendency to tell people it's going to be okay. Do we not? Don't we? Why 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 do we feel the need to tell people it's going to be okay? I wonder why. I I wonder if we're trying to convince the person that it's going to be okay. We're trying to convince ourselves it's going to be okay. I don't know. I just sometimes I, the last thing I want to hear is someone tell me it's going to be okay. Are, are you are you guys? Do you like to be told it's going to be okay? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just saying, in da- in daily, everyday life, do you like to be told everything's going to be okay? Oh, you do? Okay, it usually ticks me off. Okay, I hate when people tell me it's going to be okay. Drives me absolutely crazy. I'm like, it's not going to be okay. It's the end of the world, don't you know it? Okay, there's not a cold Dr. Pepper. It's the end of the world. Don't tell me it's going to be okay. Right? I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm going to be told it's going to be okay. All right, I do, I do, I do. Hey, don't be judging my hyperbole. This is not for you to judge me. Okay? I'm just saying in this particular case, okay, it's not going to be okay. Right, in this particular case, the people telling them that it was going to be okay was wrong. And I think anytime you tell someone it's going to be okay, you're wrong, all right? Okay, maybe that's a little hyperbole. But you get the idea here, right? You get the idea. That they're trying to tell them, hey guys, it's going to be okay. And it's not, it's not going to be okay. In fact, that's a, to me, that's a very peace, peace when there is no peace. And I wonder though, what, it's very hard. Like this verse, I love this verse, but then I hate this verse, right? I love this verse because it demonstrates that sometimes the truth The message is not positive, it's not uplifting, and it's not what people want to hear. Who wants to hear that war and judgment is coming? Nobody. They know that the people, to make them feel better, is to give them a message of hope. Now, the problem is, everyone can take this verse, right? Everyone can take this verse and say, well, what I'm preaching, nobody wants but not because I've got the truth. Everyone claims that, right? Everyone claims it. It doesn't matter. You have a Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, anybody. Everyone claims that, no, I'm preaching the truth, but they just don't want to hear it. Everyone claims that, which is frustrating, right? Because it can't apply to everyone, right? It can't apply to everyone, but everyone uses it. But it is a sign that just because someone is preaching a message does not necessarily make it, So, is that not probably one of the most frustrating parts of Jeremiah or even the life of Israel? Even for for the early church is God constantly warns of false prophets, but it doesn't do anything to stop false prophets. Isn't that kind of a maddening thing? Well, if God knows they're coming, stop them because they wreck havoc. But who knows who's the false? Like, who who gets to determine who's the false prophet? Right. I mean, I'm just saying that right here, they, they would have thought that these prophets were telling what? The truth. Correct? Right. All right. Let's at least try to finish this up because we're running out of time. Right, I'm just saying that there's I, that verse brings so many questions because on one hand, I like it. because I'd be like, yeah, yeah, everyone over there is preaching peace and there's no peace. They're not preaching the truth. They're only preaching what people want to hear. But everyone thinks that they're preaching the truth and someone else is not preaching the truth. So it's, it's kind of like a, a self-defeating verse in a lot of ways. Verse 15, were they, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall at the time that I visit them. They shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Now, again, we've talked about this already in Jeremiah. One of the most frightening, scary things to me about the book of Jeremiah is how God's people, Judah, couldn't see spiritual truth. They couldn't perceive it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't hear it. They didn't understand it. They didn't delight in it. How can God's people so, be so blind to spiritual truth? Because typically, now, again, this goes to how do Christians handle the Old Testament? <clears throat> Remember, this is, the not, no, this is the constant argument within church history. We've already talked about this in the first hour. How does the church always handle this kind of passage? They couldn't? We can they couldn't, we can. They couldn't, we can. And so what we have a tendency to do is if me and Stephen come to a theological agreement and say this is the right way and Bobby doesn't agree with it, we immediately will then say what? He doesn't have the Holy Spirit, his eyes are blinded, or he, or basically saying he is not saved. That's the that's the go to answer. The church is always throwing anyone who disagrees out, right? I mean, that's what we go to. And it's like, well, wait a minute, is it that simple? Is it that easy? I just don't I look, we got two thousand years of church history, and what has two thousand years been filled with? Disagreement and fighting and, and division. Clearly it's not like, well, just because you become a Christian, everyone has it figured out, because then we should have how many commentaries? How many churches? Right. How many doctrinal statements? All right. So clearly it doesn't work that way. We have the same problems. And it's frightening to know that maybe when we think we're right, we could be the ones who are actually wrong. I mean, that's how you guys should think every time you disagree with me. But y'all don't. Okay. All right. Verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways... And see and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Verse 16 is where all the sermons come from in this chapter, right? What do you think he means by the old paths? What do we think? Okay Well, for them, for them, what the old paths would have to refer to what? Going back I mean, look, they, their history only goes back so far, right? Okay? <laughs> you either go back to Abraham, but he's not yet a nation, so that doesn't really work, right? Okay, so really, when they they really kind of arise as a nation, where? They're in Egyptian captivity. That's when they grow, right? And they're still not a nation because they are slaves. So really, they kind of really form as a nation, if you're going to just think about this logically, after they come out of Egypt. So for them, the old paths would be back to Moses. Now, the, the funny part is, Let's go back to the time of Moses. All right, great. Return to the old paths. How good did the old paths work? An entire generation died because of disbelief and disobedience, right? How, how well did it work uh, at the time of Judges? Right. I mean, even when you start getting into the king, the kings, you have major issues, right? So I'm just saying, whenever you want to say, return to the old paths, I understand what they mean is return back to basically the, you know, the, the basic teachings of Moses, the 10 commandments, the basic things that they're violating. But we already, it's weird that like people, pastors always want to preach this. Like we just we need to turn to the old ways, but those would be the old ways, especially for them. And how did the old ways work out for them? Not so good. And even what, what's even said right here about them calling to go back to the old ways? Yeah, the priest, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can't even go to the spiritual leaders, right? But what does he say is going to happen? We will not walk therein. Everybody saying in verse sixteen. We will not walk therein. This is like, look, the story of Israel. Look, I'm just going to say it. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of the Bible is what? Man's unwillingness and ability. It's a story of failure. I mean, think about it. Even Look, when you read the New Testament, I know people hate this, but just even read the New Testament. We are told almost early on in the book in the New Testament, as you start reading through, that what's going to happen to the church? Okay, we're warned that wolves are going to arise from within very early on. That Paul's telling the Ephesian elders that. What else are you told about the church? Come on, think about scriptures about the last days. Right, okay, remember we, 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 we talk about this all the time. We'll just, you're, everyone's kind of hinting at it, right? Go, go, let's go to 2 uh, Timothy, ti- okay, we'll go to uh, 1 Timothy 4, one. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, right? Okay, that's clearly talking about what's going on in the church, is it not? All right, then we go to 2 Timothy All right, verse 3, remember we've talked about this a million times, Second Timothy chapter 3, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitor, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And for some weird reason, the people... Always take this and say, this is, applies to the culture. It does not apply to the culture. Why do I say it doesn't apply to the culture? First, it's written to whom? To Timothy, right? And he's telling you what's going to happen in the church. How do I know it doesn't apply to the culture? Verse 4. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. When has the culture ever loved God more than pleasure? Never. This is the church. How do I know? Verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. This is what's going to happen inside the church. The church, the church is going to have all of these problems. The church is going to slowly but surely get worse and worse and worse, which raises the question, as the church gets worse, where is the Christians going to be? Are they going to be in the church or outside the church? I don't know. Raises all kinds of questions. But by the time it's going to get, it gets pretty bad, does it not? Yes, even in Jude, you got people creeping in unawares, and they're where? Inside the church, right? If we understand 1 John to be a polemic against Gnosticism, he's fighting against what that's crept into the church? Gnosticism, right? Over and over and over, this is the problem. So I, I find it interesting that we always look at like Jeremiah and like, look, they didn't understand, they couldn't see, but we've got it figured out. The Bible is a story of man's failure and inability from Genesis to Revelation. And it's only fixed by what? Christ coming back and slaughtering his enemies, right? And then what happens in Revelation, what, 19 going into 20? It's not a pretty sight because it's man's failure over and over and over, all right? So, let's look at this, so we can finish this chapter up, hopefully. So, I I mean, look, everyone can preach, go back to the old paths, but you can tell people to go back to the old paths, but even in the old paths, people did what? Failed, right? Does that make sense? All right, verse 17, also I said, watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. Are you getting a, a, a concept what's going on? What happened? What did they say at the end of verse 16? We will not walk. Will not walk. What do they say at the end of verse 17? We will not listen. Alright? And then verse 18, therefore hear ye nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them? Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor my law, but rejected it. To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba, and the sweet came from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. They've so corrupted themselves God doesn't even want what? Doesn't even want their worship. All right. Verses and then 21 to 30. We can try to finish this. All right. We got to go quickly. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people and the fathers and the sons together shall fall upon them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. Thus saith the Lord, behold, a people cometh from the north country and a great nation shall be raised from the sides of the earth. They shall lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roareth like the sea. They ride upon horses, set in array as men of war against thee, O daughter of Zion. We have heard uh, the fame thereof. Our hands wax feeble. Anguish hath taken hold of us and a pain as a woman in travail. Go not forth into the field nor walk by the way for the sword of the enemy and fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth and wallow thyself in ashes. Make thee mourning as in, as if as for an only son. Most bitter lamentations, for the spoiler have suddenly come upon us. I have set thee for a tower and a fortress among my people that they may knowest and try their way. They all are grievous revolters walking with slanders. They're brass and iron. They're all corruptors. There, the bellows are burned; the lead, the lead is consumed of fire. The founder melteth in vain, for the wicked are not plucked away. Reprobate silver and reprobate silver shall man call them, because the Lord hath rejected them. That is how the chapter ends. Not very good, is it? Not very good. Uh, would you say depressing? Discouraging? I would as well. Is everything going to be okay? Not in the short term. Right? Not in the short term. And no matter how many times they were told to repent, what would they not do? Uh, repent. So let's try to come up with some basic points to summarize everything with, Okay right we understand the basic point of the chapter yes i understand there's lots of language he uses figurative language continually does he not you got to try to figure out exactly what's going on we got some issues with who is speaking but we can understand the basic message there's no question about the basic message right babylon's coming to judah and they're about to be destroyed right they're about to go into babylonian captivity right okay here's what we know all right so here's just some basic things to take away this morning one i really want you to just contemplate and think along What causes repentance to occur? What causes it to occur, and what causes it not to occur? I want you to really just think about that question, think about that question, and how you process that. Right? I mean, you've only got a couple, you only got two options. It's either God or me. And if it's me, that raises a million questions, and if it's God, raises a million more. All right? that, That is such a big one. All right? Number two. I want you to consider how the story of the Bible is man's failure and inability to obey and listen to God, and it's repeated a million times. Can we agree with that? Over and 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 over. And And even if you get to the people of, quote, unquote, the heroes of the faith mentioned In Hebrews 11, go read their stories. They people who failed as well. All right? So who causes repentance? I want you to understand the story of the Bible. And then number three, I want you to really, hopefully if you really consider the story of the Bible, I want you to really consider then what's the only hope? The hope cannot be in what we do, can do, should do, may do. It has to be in what Christ did. Because every other, like you can say, repent, go back and do this. You can give everyone that list of things to do. Go back to, I mean, like, is that not bizarre in Jeremiah? They're told to go to the old paths. Because if we go to the old paths, the people who had the old paths failed in the old paths people failed. and anyway, I know Christians love to say, no, see, the problem is they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Now that we do, but as soon as you start reading the New Testament, what starts going on in the churches? Every kind of wrong in the world. Why? Because I don't care if you're Old Testament. I don't care if you're New Testament. What are you? A sinner, a sinner. And what is your only hope? Yeah, and what Christ did for you, not what we can do, because we will never do it anywhere close. We will fail over and over and over. I don't know how you can read these Old Testament books and go, "Well, that was them, and sure not me." I don't know what was wrong with Israel. Now, I, I I would have probably stated that that way at certain parts of my Christian life because I was told, "Well, I'm different. I got power they don't have. They didn't have. They didn't have the power. I have the power." But then at some point you realize. I'm I'm no different to them. I'm covetous. I'm an idolater. Like, I'm filled with all of the exact same sins. They just don't manifest themselves in the exact same way. How often do I not delight in God's word? How often do I not hear God's word? Over and over and over and over and over. Like, at some point, this should so break you that you're like, "I, I need help somewhere. But most people preach this as, hey, don't be like Judah. And here are the four things you need to do to stop doing it. So, And, and we know what it's going to be. Read your Bible, go to church, pray more, get, be a part of a small group, give some money, and that's going to fix all your problems until next Sunday when I have to preach the exact same sermon. And then the following Sunday we I have to preach the exact same Sunday. And then the following Sunday where I keep telling you, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. When everyone walks out the door knowing well, no everyone, no, everyone walks out the door knowing they're not going to do it. Everyone knows they're not going to do it. And even if they try to do it, it's only going to last temporary. And does that not raise the question, why can we not do it? Because either we can or we can't. That's really the question Christians have to ask. Can we or can't we? The general answer within Christianity is we can't. So then you have to convince yourself that you are when you're actually not. You have to convince yourself, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like them. But the reality is we're just like them. We're just like them. All right. Let's pray. Look how we come for you this afternoon. A very depressing, discouraging book but I hope one that wakes us up to the reality of our own depravity, our own weakness and our own frailty and make sure our only hope is in the one who came to save his people from their sins. And that is in Christ. And he saved us not by making us stop sinning. He saved us by forgiving us and giving us his perfect righteousness. And it's only in that righteousness we approach you and it's in his name. We pray God's people said,